So good morning. I'm really happy to be here with y'all today. Um, and just really have been excited about being able to spend time with you all. Um, if you know me and you've heard me speak before, you know I'm a bit ADD and the pages in my head will um, turn really quickly and so I always make outlines so that I can stay on track. And my biggest fear I was telling Nick um, when I came this morning is always that I'll talk too long because my mother has always reminded me that I'm a talker. And when I first started telling her like I was speaking, I, I've done years of public speaking, um, she was like, do they know that you like to talk? So I said I need like shut up music. So if I go long, Nick can come up here and be like on the piano and then I'll know. Um, but when, so, you know, George and I met, I guess back in April, and he said, you know, we're going to go on this journey into the Sermon on the Mount. And I really want you to read it um, because it's, we're going to do this for six months and I want you to find the places in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, that really speak to you, because um, I want you to teach with me, because it's going to be a lot for me to cover by myself. So I was like, okay. So I go, and I, I've read the Sermon on the Mount. Probably, you know, I grew up in church, so I've heard the Sermon on the Mount, much like many of you, um, my whole life. And I went to it, and I read it, and I was kind of like, hmm, hmm. And then I was like, what is wrong with me? that I'm reading this and I don't just feel um, spoken to in this. Like, what is the matter? Because I realized that for me, the Sermon on the Mount, maybe it's similar for you, felt really unattainable. I was reading the words of Jesus going, that was then, that was great for them, but how does that pertain to me? And so in that, you know, my journey was, I thought, well, maybe in a sense, through this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was talking about the Ten Commandments. So I went back and I read the Ten Commandments. I read about um, in Exodus 34 when God appeared to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments. And he said, I'm God, whose very name is Jealous, because he was jealous about a relationship with us. And I thought, hmm, okay. And then I read that Moses, in God's presence, glowed because he was with him for 40 days and 40 nights. And I meditated on this, and I thought about this. What did this mean for me in my life, and how did that pertain to what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount? Then I thought, well, it's really important for us to understand the pre-Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> what happened before um, Jesus gave this sermon to the people um, and I learned, if you go back, like, I learned that Matthew's very topical. So Matthew was speaking mainly to a Jewish audience, and he was kind of hitting the high points. It's not necessarily chronological. He's just kind of telling the important things. And, but you compare Matthew with Luke 4 through 6. And if you're on your own journey of understanding the Sermon on the Mount, I would encourage you to go and do that. Y'all look so close. I love it. <laughs> um, anyway, I just noticed it, you know, as we focus on community here. Um, so I learned um, if you read the other Gospels, you'll find out that before Jesus spoke the words on the Sermon on the Mount, he was baptized by John. He turned the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. He was tempted by Satan and spent 40 days in the desert. He had healed many, cast out evil spirits. He had turned the tables over in the temple. He met with Nicodemus at night, and I could 
talk to you all day about Nicodemus because if you haven't studied Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, there are so many hidden treasures in that that really lead us to what Jesus was going to say at the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus was making an offer to Nicodemus as well. Um, And he had called his disciples. And that is where we are when we get to this point about the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. So then I started thinking, wow, these called, these, these um, disciples that Jesus had called out of their everyday life, what was this call that caused these people to leave everything? No questions le- asked. I mean, you think about it. Peter left his nets, his boat. Matthew abandoned the toll booth, his job, his career, his wealth. They left their families, their friends, and they followed Jesus. What was the call? That caused them to do that. And I'll point you to to John 10. And I'm going to start at verse 3. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. After he's gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them. And they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from them because they don't know that person's voice. These disciples recognized the call of the Lord. And they abandoned everything and followed. And that is where we are when Jesus spoke of the Sermon of the Mount. Now, I chose this picture um, that was on the screen behind me because... I'd, I didn't understand initially that, that Jesus was speaking to the disciples, those that he had called out. So in Luke 6, 12, it says, One day, um, soon after, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. And at daybreak, he called up his disciples, and he chose 12 of them to be, to be apostles. So there's this pivotal turning point, this transition from disciple to apostle, okay? So disciple, the Greek, the Greek word for disciple means follower, learner. The Greek word for apostle means one who is sent, chosen for specific work, mission-driven. And that's a really important um, differentiation as we look at Jesus and the disciples on this level area um, coming down from the mountain together and you see in this, in this depiction, they have this glow around them, similar to what it says, you know, after Moses spent 40 days um, with God, that he, the evidence of him being in God's presence was on him. And that's how this artist, who I'm sorry, I don't know who it is, depicted the disciples. So, you know, even in Hebrews 3.1, if you'll put that up, Karen, it refers to Jesus as an apostle. It says he sent um, with authority of the Father. Specifically, think carefully about this Jesus. This is the New Living Translation, um, whom we call God's messenger or apostle. So this was a big deal. It says in Colossians that God, in all his fullness, was happy to live, was pleased to live in the person of Christ. Now, if you put up um, Luke 6 and 17, it says, when they came down from the mountain. The disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area. 
surrounded by many followers and by the crowd. So I pointed to you to the fact that Jesus was doing all this stuff before this sermon happened. People were coming from everywhere to follow him. They wanted to hear him. They wanted him to heal them. He was becoming known. Um, and then Matthew 5, 1, as we start the Sermon on the Mount, says his disciples gathered around, around him, and he began to teach them. So visualize this. These disciples, back up to this first picture, are sitting on this level area in the presence of Jesus, God in person, in the presence, in the vision of the followers and the crowds. So Jesus is recognizing them because he is the one that called them out, is sending them back in. And I love that because to me that puts the Sermon on the Mount in such perspective. The called out, you know, those who left everything and embraced this life of poverty, of scarcity, of hunger, of rejection. He said the kingdom is yours. Not the kingdom will be yours. The kingdom is yours. It's present. It's happening now. The kingdom is yours. They belong to Jesus. I look at this like this um, rallying call, so to speak. Like you've got the coach and the team, and he's saying, you know, this is what we're going to do. This is the plan, and he's pointing them towards victory. Jesus had this small flock, as it says in John 10, but he, his eyes were set on the big flock. So he was calling them out to send them back. And that's so important for us to realize as we study this. So when we look at the Beatitudes, um, you know, the burden of the Beatitudes, they had already accepted that call. Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah 61. If you're digging into the Sermon on the Mount, read Isaiah 61 where he said, I I'm gonna, I've, I've been anointed to preach the good news to the poor, to set the captives free. Now these called these disciples were walking alongside Jesus as he did that. Um, so they had already accepted this life. And this quote from Bonhoeffer, and if you're really deep in the Sermon on the Mount, I really would, um, you can put that up, Karen, I really would um, point you to The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer if you haven't read it. It really um, opens a lot of understanding up around the words of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And Bonhoeffer says, only the call and promise for the sake of which they are ready to suffer poverty and renunciation can justify the Beatitudes. So Jesus looks at the ones he loves so much. He sees the road ahead. He knows it's paved with suffering. And he reminds them in the midst of all of that, they are blessed. The Beatitudes were spoken to them. Blessed are you who embrace poverty, who mourn for the sake of the lost who offer forgiveness even in the face of persecution, who hunger and thirst. The kingdom is yours, not the world, but the kingdom. So in the midst of all of this, he reminds them that they are blessed. The ones he called out publicly, he was sending back. So, you know, Jesus knew that the disciples belonged to the people and that they belonged together. And to me, that's such a beautiful picture of the call on our own lives as we're called to discipleship of what does that mean? Jesus, that's called us out, is sending us back. And I could tell you story after story of my own journey um, 
for living out, learning to live this out. I'm so far away from where I need to be. But I always find Jesus in the lives of the marginalized. The existence that was the burden of the Beatitudes make those who responded to this call, those who do respond to this call, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So when I got to salt and light, I was kind of relieved because the Beatitudes are really heavy. But I just feel like you can't really discuss the salt and the light without understanding the heaviness of the Beatitudes and what these disciples had done. It wasn't about them choosing it. It was about a call and a response. And that call is evident and available to all of us. And the salt and the light specifically speaks to that. So I made the mistake two weeks ago when, when Georgia, not the mistake, but when Georgia and I, we, I, I stay and pick up because I'm not organized to come and set up. So I come and, you know, I stay after and I, and I love doing that. And Georgia and I were talking about it and I said, yeah, you know, um, I think we could spend six months on salt and light. And he took me up on it. He texts me the other day and he goes, okay, good luck getting that in one talk. I said, I said nothing about one talk. I said six months. So in reality, I really think we could talk a lot about salt and light and what Jesus meant with that. So when I got to that in my own study about the salt, you are the salt of the earth, I was like, hmm, I like things to make sense, sort of, which is so hard because there's so much mystery, you know, and, and some things you just have to leave to the mystery of it all. So... Um, but I dove into salt. I could give a small, his, a small chemistry lesson on salt. I won't. <laughs> it's your lucky day. I won't give you a chemistry lesson on sodium chloride um, and the fact that they're very happy to share this one electron. They're like a really great marriage. Um, but what is it about salt? What was Jesus saying? Um, so you need to know that in those days, um, the Greek thought salt was so important that they, they actually thought it had divine healing properties. And the Romans thought it was so valuable, and it was so valuable, that um, they paid people in salt. Thank goodness they don't do it. They should pay us now in gasoline. That would be good. Um, but they paid people in salt, and that's where the saying came from, that someone wasn't worth their salt. So if a soldier didn't fulfill his duties, then they would say, he isn't worth his salt, um, which George said to me last week actually is where the word salary even comes from, is from the word salt. So Jesus was saying to them, you're valuable. He was also pointing to the fact that during those times, salt was a preserver of life. Um, so they, they didn't have refrigeration, so they used salt to, to preserve their food. And so they needed food to live, right? So he was saying to the disciples, you are a preserver of life. Um, you are a reminder because salt is an enhancer. You are a reminder of God in the world. You're a necessity. You're indispensable. You are life for the loss. You're a sustainer. Um, my husband and I were on a trip, and I was talking to him about this, and he, he said, you know, animals will go toward a, towards a salt lick. Anybody that lives on a farm, they'll automatically go towards a salt lick. You don't tell them, like, hey, cow, you need this to survive. It's innate. They know they need it. So Jesus was saying to these men, they need you. I'm sending you back because they need you. And that is so beautiful. I mean, the idea that salt, you know, you represent life for the lost. Um, when I was a kid, somebody told me, if anybody else has ever done this, I want to know about it. But when I was a kid, my grandparents lived out in the country, and I spent weekends with them a lot. And 
my grandmother um, would always, like, we lived, like, um, backed up to farmland in Arkansas, and um, my grandmother would run through the fields with me. We would, we would bury dead bugs. We did all kinds of crazy stuff. I, I thought <clears throat> recently, like, my grandmother was so cool. Like, how did she do all that stuff? And I realized she was, like, 44. So, <clears throat> anyway, one day I decided that I was going to, um, that I was going to, I had heard one of my friends had told me that if you caught flies in a jar of water, has anybody ever done this? And you shake them up, and you drown them, and you pour them out, and then you pour salt on top of them, they come back to life. It works. I did that all day when I was a kid. I would drown flies, and then I would pour salt on them, and they would dig out of the salt and come back to life. And um, I rested the top of my grandparents' deep freeze doing that. But um, besides that, I got that visual of that, these Dead people that don't know that they need life, digging out of the salt, coming back to life. You are the salt. Um, The disciples have an earthly purpose, and Jesus here is entrusting his mission to them. Um, So anyway, it says, though, then... Ooh, my thing just got shorter. Um, Okay. Um, It says, then, that... um, But what good is salt that loses its saltiness? I mean, it's not good at all. You'll be thrown out in the trash and trampled underfoot. So what was Jesus saying in this? He was saying, don't lose focus. Stay faithful to your mission. If you lose your flavor or you abandon the call or deny your purpose, you will no longer have relevance. And so how does salt lose its saltiness? Well, from a chemical perspective, because I know y'all are sitting on the edges of your seat wanting to know about that, salt can only lose its saltiness two ways, through contamination and separation. Now, I'm not going to dive into what that means for each of you, but ask yourself, what are the things that contaminate our call? What are the things that separate us from the Word of God? Sometimes it's busyness. Sometimes we just forget But that's how salt loses its saltiness through this actual, like, dilution with water or mixing with other chemicals. It's the same for us, is we lose our saltiness when we lose sight of our focus, when we lose passion for our mission, when we forget our call. And um, it's referring really to the expectation of discipleship. Believers are to bring out the word in the world Salt loses its ability to preserve, to enhance, to bring hope, to bring life when it's no longer salt. We lose our saltiness when we're out of purpose. So Jesus says, you're the salt. Not only are you the salt, you're the light. It's not just a statement. It's not be the light, be the salt. You have this tool of salt. You have this tool of light. It's a declaration. You're the salt. You're the light. What does that mean to be the the light of the world, the salt of the earth? Um, And so if you sit with this, you know, it's pointing to our whole existence of being grounded in Christ. And what is it about light? I've thought about light a lot because I don't don't know if you know this, but, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom. Um, I had been in medical research and development. I had traveled extensively, and I was staying home because it was hard to have as many kids as me and travel and get on a plane every week. And um, 
I don't know, I still, I, I think like for me being a, an at-home mom was really important, but I always really knew that I was supposed to do something um, else on top of that. And uh, being a stay-at-home mom is so hard anyway. So, um, but especially when you have as many kids as I do. But, um, you know, I, I started working in, in a nonprofit in 2006 and became aware of it in 2005. And I was working first in anti-trafficking. Then in 2005, nobody was talking about domestic trafficking. And I worked in that field for 10 years, and I read a lot about Moses leading the people out of Egypt, um, about this light um, and understanding, like, going into these dark spaces and what God was really calling me to, like, asking a lot about that. And what I learned Im- immediately was light's visible. And where is light the most evident? In the darkness. So in reading this, I started thinking um, maybe in this journey, this discipleship that we're called to, God calls us out And then he sends us back in as light into the darkness because that is where his love is most evident. And before that, Jesus had called himself the light of the world. Now he called those he chose to be the light, a visible community, the church. Um, You know, Colossians 1.15 says, just as Christ was the visible image of the invisible God, we are to be also the visible image of Christ, who is no longer physically here with us, but lives inside of us. I like to think of it because, you know, I used to work with a guy in the FBI. Nick will appreciate this. And um, he would always introduce himself at every meeting that we went to. Like, I'm so-and-so. I used to work for the FBI. I did all this stuff. I kicked in doors and stuff. And I got to where I would say, I'm Stacia and I'm a spy. And he said, you probably are a spy because that's the best cover ever. It's just to say you are. And I love thinking about the fact that we are his image in the world in the sense we're his agents. Um, As the girls I work with would say, um, we're the OGs, the original gangsters. We're the ones there that are um, in the dark but being the light. And he says, "Um, you're not hidden. You know, who would light a lamp and put it under a table or a bushel. No, you're out. I'm putting you out there for everyone to see. If you hide the light, then you're not in purpose. You're, you're abandoning the call because we're called to be the light. Um, so he says um, to the disciples, you must now be what you are. It was this reciprocation, this relational aspect of the cross. Will you show my, my selfie picture? It's not me. My kids will be glad to know. It's not a selfie of me. I love this. I don't know if you watch The Chosen, but, you know, there's a lot. We, we could discuss that. But I love this picture of the guy that plays Jesus taking a selfie with the disciples. I think that's hilarious. Now flip the page, um, Karen. There, there's their selfie. I love thinking about the relational aspect of that, that, you know, Jesus, in all his reverence, in all his godliness, was still relational with the people he served alongside and the people that chose to follow him and the crowds that came to him. Um, He said, you must now be what you are. He was sending them back to be what you are. Um, 
So then he says, you know, let your actions, your good deeds will set you apart. He didn't say go out there and build a platform and make it all about you and sell merch. No offense to anybody that sells merch. And start a blog. And he says, let your actions be what points others towards me. And I think we could sit with that and talk about that all a long time. The future of the church depended on these men that he was sending out. I think like Jesus established the original pyramid scheme. It was a trade, train the trainer. He trained 12, they trained 12, they each trained 12. You know, I mean, he sent them out. So he says, um, you're like a city on the hill, meaning you're very visible. You can show that picture. I found a picture of Nashville online at night, all lit up. I don't know if you've ever been on a plane um, and you've been, uh, it's dark and then all of a sudden you see the city that you're going to and it lights up kind of out of the horizon. That's who we are. I remember when I was a kid, my family had a, um, a family reunion. I couldn't think of the name. Um, and for some reason, my mom went to the wrong park. Now, this is like 1982. We had no cell phones, no GPS. We're in the middle of nowhere. My mom, my aunt, my baby sister who was maybe, I don't know, it was maybe 79, so she was probably about two, and me. And we're driving, 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 driving. And all of a sudden, this guy on a motorcycle behind us goes around, and right as he does, a deer runs out in front of him. So he flies off, you know, and then we stop. We can't call anybody. We're sitting there waiting for a light that maybe helps coming so we can flag him down, like, and, and eventually somebody came, and they went back to town to get the ambulance, and we wait for them to come. We're taking blankets out of the car. We're putting them on this man. I think about, like, what that light meant to us in that moment, and then I'm reminded that we are that light. We are that refuge for the weary traveler, you know, when you see the light from a distance. Um, so an ending, because I'm, oh, y'all, I didn't go that much over. Um, so an ending, I'll say, um, first of all, I hope that you know, I'm not a theologian. I didn't go to seminary. Um, I've been a student of Jesus my whole life, um, and in the last five years, more so than ever before. Um, I hope that the time that we've spent together, you just see me, I'm just part of the community, and that whatever you've learned from me today points you towards digging and asking questions, because he can handle it. We can ask him, how, what does this mean for my life? How do I live this out in my day-to-day and so my question is, how do we maintain our call? Uh, and I think, um, you know, Psalm 63, 8 always points me back. Whenever I'm really lost in, in my journey, I always find myself back in the Psalms with David because what a testament of somebody that would really struggle well with the Lord. And the New Living Translation version of Psalm 63, 8 says, I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me security, securely. But I love what the King James Version says. It says, my soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholds me. Would we all be those that follow hard after Jesus so that we can be the salt and the light? I'll close this out in prayer. Oh, holy God, you are worthy. 
What a privilege to love you, to follow close behind you. Oh, Jesus, would you point us to those that need the salt, that need the light, and would you sustain us? Would you remind us that you went before us and that you call us blessed, blessed? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good luck, friends, on your journey. Have a great week.